turn to the proud, nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Brothers and sisters, this is not a, an image of us, right? The ones who turn to the proud, those, lapse in, those who lapse into falsehood. Many times in our lives, we demonstrate this type of behavior and this type of attitude, uh, many times ignorant to the faith that we confess uh, of the holy God. But we see here the, the words of the psalmist that it is God who inclines, inclines to our hearts and our cries. He brings us up out of the pit of destruction out of the miry clay and he sets our feet upon a rock and makes them so firm our footsteps he puts new songs in our mouths and allows us to sing praise to him so with that said let's close our eyes and take a moment to silently pray in our own hearts a prayer of repentance as we come before this holy god and this righteous god we'll pray this prayer and then we'll begin with a, with a time of song Gracious God, we thank you for gathering your saints, your house this afternoon as we come together as a church. We celebrate and remember Christ who came and died for us. We thank you for uh, the breaking of his body and the pouring of his blood, that he would take on death, the death that we deserve, that we could be saved. Father, we confess our faith in him as our Lord and Savior, and we ask as we sing these songs that you would be honored, lifted, and glorified as we hear from your word, that it will be conviction on our hearts. We thank you so much, and we ask the Spirit to be with us, to dwell within us, and its power to work in us this uh, afternoon. We thank you, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, would you rise from your seats as we sing songs to him? i uh-huh. 
brothers and sisters, it's my pleasure uh, to welcome our guest speaker for this afternoon. Typically, when I go guest speaking or anytime I introduce a guest speaker, they talk about credentials, education, family, how many children they have, uh, things like that, which are all great things. Um, but to me, I wanted to introduce Lyndon as a faithful man of God, as a brother in the faith. And to me, my experience with him, meeting him a few years ago and just reconnecting with him recently, uh, he, he's one of the most gentle people I've ever met. And so I hope to learn a lot from him, uh, both today and moving forward. So allow me to introduce uh, Pastor Lyndon Joss from Christchurch, Toronto, to come and speak to us this time. Well, a, a kind introduction. Thank you, Pastor Max. It's good to be here with you all. Uh, you'll see up on the screen that we're going to do um, Titus. W one credential that's very important to me that uh, Pastor Max missed saying is that I've got three children and a wife, and they're very important to me. <laughs> and we've got a fourth kid on the way, too, so we're, we praise God for that. We are going to be spending some time uh, in the first part of the book of Titus. This is going to be maybe a bit of a strange passage in some ways because um, it's talking about elders of the church, okay, and what, what, what it takes to be an elder of the church. Um, when you think about elder in terms of age, there's not a lot of elders in this room. Uh, you're all quite, quite young, I, 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 I see. That's what I gather from the observation of my eyes. Um, but nonetheless, we're going to consider this passage together. Um, and what I hope, what, one of the things I hope that you'll do is this is an opportunity to, in a sense, listen in on, on what it is to be an elder in Christ's church and to learn then of what it is to be a member in Christ's church, what it is to be called Christ's own. Okay, so um, yes, these are qualifications of an elder that we'll consider, but at the same time, the qualifications of an elder also mark out what we all ought to be aspiring to be and to do. So with that, I'm going to begin uh, reading this passage. Uh, again, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, less than a year ago, you may have heard some kind of a headline report. Uh, for me, it came up in the New York Times article. Uh, it was the Roman Catholic Church had sent a delegation to do an investigation. And here's how the report came up in my own headline from the New York Times. Over 200,000 minors abused by clergy in France since 1950. Over 200,000 minors abused by clergy in France since 1950. That uh, was some simple math, about 3,000 a year. That's over eight children per day abused by clergy, okay, people of the church, uh, leaders in the church, people who had been ordained, set apart for service, to give leadership in Christ's church. And this is in France alone. 
over a 70-year period. The article puts it, about 216,000 minors, it says, mostly boys, ages 10 to 13, have been abused by clergy members in France since 1950. And to this staggering estimate, it's reported that one spokesperson responded this way in a room full of, um, of Roman Catholic clergy, okay, as this news was, re was released. Somebody, one spokesperson commented, you are a disgrace to humanity, that's what they said to these clergy in the room. And of course, we know that it's not just Roman Catholics. It's not just a problem for them. We've become well aware of this in our own nation, okay, with some of the travesties around residential schools, for instance, that the church has abused its powers in horrific ways. Okay, we know this not just in the past few years, but over the last few thousand years. Right, that the church has abused its power in many ways, in terrible ways, in ways that are shameful, disgraceful, to humanity, and it's become a place where abuse in certain times and places has even flourished in the church, even led by its own leaders, ministers, elders, priests, abusing power, misusing their place of privilege and authority, all in the name of Jesus. Hmm. What do we do with this? How does the church respond to its own abuses of power? Do we run away from the church? Do we say, well, the church obviously doesn't have it? You know, do we privatize our faith for people who still like Jesus, but maybe don't like the church or the way that institutions play out with power dynamics and abuses of power? Do we, do we privatize our faith and say, we don't need the church, we can continue to live as good, good Christians without these kinds of authority, uh, authority structures? Do we opt for a more egalitarian system? Right, where we don't ordain ministers anymore. Where does that come from anyway? You know, we don't set out some people to have certain leadership uh, um, authority. Well, our passage today opens with Paul's instructions to Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, he says, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And it's hard for me to read a passage like this, uh, to not read it, in light of the disorder of the church in our own day. Some of the abuses of power in our own day. The brokenness and chaos of our own time. That which remains to be put into order. Perhaps the order that we need isn't so different either from the kind of order that they needed in Crete. Okay. Uh, see, Crete, in Paul's time, was no safe haven. It had a reputation. Uh, it had a reputation for disorder. I mean, we know of the Roman world generally as a place where uh, sex scandals were well known. Okay? They weren't uh, unique. Sex abuses, prevalence of prostitution and what they called pederasty. It was kind of a tradition of uh, what they considered mentorship of young boys, which included a sexual element. Okay? So it involved kind of an institutionalized abuse of young boys in the Roman world. Okay? This was normal and certainly normalized in a place like Crete. These would have been stark realities in Roman Crete, with its especially grave reputation as a place of barbarism and immorality. It's quite a context when you think about it for Paul and, uh, and then Titus to have come as a, church, as a young church planter, you know, to come and plant a church in this place called Crete, which was known, it kind of had a rep reputation for this disorder and dysfunction and immorality. And the church, Paul says, was given this task to create order out of this chaos, to put into order what remained, as he says, not to be part of the chaos, as has happened in the life of the church over the years. This, this I mean, it's an interesting way to put the task of the church, right? to take the chaos and to make it into order, that the church is supposed to be something of a renewed humanity. Right? The church is supposed to be something of a of a garden in the midst of a chaotic world, right? a place where humans can come and flourish and experience safety and true communion, true fellowship with one another and with God. This is what is supposed to happen in the church. And one of the central ways that this order was to be created, Paul tells us, is to appoint elders, he says, to appoint elders, or what could literally be translated to ordain elders, okay? in a way that's formal, setting aside particular uh, tested and qualified men to be appointed, ordained to a particular role in providing leadership or oversight 
in the life of the church. If you've ever wondered about this strange process that we today call ordination in the church, here's one place that we find it. People being set apart, tested, and then appointed for a particular function in the life of the church um, as elders or bishops, depending on the way you translate some of these Greek words. But of course, it's in light of the present scandals, the present uh, errors in church leadership uh, among pastors, priests, clergy of all kinds, that this practice of ordination is now called into question. And maybe some of you feel this uh, yourselves. Maybe some of you have experienced abuses of power within the church. And in a time when church leaders are failing in shameful ways, this is happening all around us. Okay? It's happening all around us. I'm sure we can all think of uh, situations, churches, even in our own city, if not in the news headlines, where some of this stuff has, has unfolded. Right? Uh, ministers misusing and abusing power, providing for themselves when they should be looking to provide for others, right? proving ourselves to be a disgrace to humanity as one justly put it. And given all of this, the question, one question that arises is, shouldn't we be skeptical of church leadership? Should we not? You know, shouldn't we be skeptical about all of this? Like what? Appoint, appoint church leaders so that what? They can abuse their power and abuse children in these different contexts? Is this what we're, we're trying to do so we can um, set aside some people to have a certain kind of power and privilege that they might abuse it? misuse it in relationship to their, their own congregation? Is this what we're trying to do? Well, if, if that's you, and if you, if you have this kind of a skepticism towards ordination and church leadership and church structure, if that's your concern, well, our passage says with you that it should be. It should be. It should be a real concern to you when you see church leaders misusing and abusing their power. That should be a concern to you. It's not good. It shouldn't be allowed in the church of Christ. Because this, too, is Christ's own concern, it turns out, from our passage today. This is Jesus' concern, and the concern of the Apostle Paul here, namely that the church of Jesus Christ would be well-led, protected, ordered by qualified and tested leaders. And evidently, Paul's well aware that with this responsibility comes real power, and so with it, the real potential for the abuse of power. Which is why Paul immediately emphasizes the qualifications of an elder. And what does it look like? What does it take to be an elder or a leader, or if you translate it a certain way, a bishop in Christ's church? Well, for one thing, the elder is qualified, what we find here in this passage, the elder is qualified almost entirely based on, you'll notice, his character, having Christ-like character. In fact, our passage has nothing to say about giftedness, somebody showing themselves to be particularly charismatic, having uh, strong leadership giftings, showing themselves to be of a certain kind of financial um, uh, class, or have a certain kind of success or political influence. These are not the, the interests of our passage. Rather, the central questions that come up from our passage are things like this. Is he committed to his wife? And what are his children like? And what's he like around people that know him? How is he thought of by outsiders? Is he above reproach, blameless before the eyes of the watching world, hospitable, disciplined, etc.? So I think we have to conclude from a passage like this is that somebody might say, of a given person, he loves Jesus, you know, look, uh, he's a very spiritual person, very gifted, he's led many people to the Lord, right, look how bold he is about his faith, look at all these converts, let's make him an elder, let's, uh, let's give him a position of leadership in the church, and Paul asks, Paul asks instead, what's his home life like? What's his home life like? How does he treat his wife? How does he treat his friends and colleagues, and what do they think about him? How does he treat the stranger in terms of hospitality? We'll talk about that. And does he live a life of self-control and discipline? These are the pressing questions for the Apostle Paul as he's thinking about elders in the church. And in fact, there seem to be two main categories that we'll talk about here. Two main categories under which the elders to be assessed. 
first, what we could call in the domestic sphere, okay, in terms of his home life, and then second, what I'll call in the personal sphere, okay, in terms of his own person and character. Okay, so first, we find that the elder is to be blameless in the domestic sphere. The term blameless could also be translated here above reproach, and it means this most basically, that there are no grounds for an accusation of civic or domestic impropriety. That's the way one commentator put it. No grounds for an accusation of civic or domestic impropriety. In other words, if you're going to be an elder in Christ's church, giving oversight to the church, your public reputation matters. Your public reputation must be, by and large, unblemished and undisputed. Okay? If your name is associated with public scandal, then that would be a stopper in terms of giving leadership in Christ's church. Okay? This matters. Uh, somebody might ask about the Apostle Paul. Uh, <laughs> if you know his, his story, his, his name was very much identified with public scandal. That was, of course, before, before his conversion. So you might say, well, you know, that was before his conversion. Um, but it is interesting, just the way that uh, we see through Acts, um, a real concerted effort to redeem his name, to clear his name. Right? Uh, there had to be certain leaders in the church who vouched for him in relationship to others. They had to clear, there was kind of a name-clearing process. I think that that's very much appropriate. Right? Somebody whose name is public, uh, um, associated with public scandal, that's not okay. You, you don't just make that person an elder in the church. Okay? And all of this, we'll see, is, is a, a protective function, to protect the, sh the church, right? Protect the church from, from uh, false teachers and false sheep. Uh, Paul concludes here also uh, that the elder is the husband of one wife, or more literally, a one-woman man. Okay? Elders in the church are quite literally to be a one-woman man. Again, it's clear here that Paul doesn't care how holy you think you are, okay? or how successful you think you are, or how successful you, uh, you actually are in a particular area of life. If you have more than one woman in your life, as a married man, you stand disqualified as an elder. Okay? This includes, of course, not only what you do with your body, but what you do with your eyes, and what you do with your speech, and how you engage with other women. Are you doing it as a one-woman man? Are you living as a one-woman man? Somebody who's faithful to your spouse. This is a basic qualification of an elder. That if a man is married, he's living in covenant faithfulness to his wife. And we might add, if a man is not married, then you're living open to the possibility of being this one-woman man. Right? In other words, you're not a womanizer before you get married. Right? That's uh, hopefully a clear implication. All right. Next, Paul goes on to another qualification. The elder is the husband of one wife, and he continues, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, if you're anything like me, this seems very odd. It seems like an odd qualification of an elder. Right? Um, how can Paul demand that an elder's children be Christians? Okay. How can he demand that an elder's children are living in the faith. Isn't that the personal choice of each and every child? Isn't that something that's more up to God than it is up to the elder of the church? Do parents really have that kind of control? Right? That his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination? Well, that's a big question. And that could take a long time to unpack. Uh, but what I'll say here is simply this. That the New Testament world, and of course the ancient world of, the, of Israel before that, generally assumed that children were part of the same cultural, linguistic, religious uh, 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 culture as their parents. Right? That children walk in the same line. They're part of the same covenant traditions, the same people. A covenant made with their parents was a covenant made with them. Right? If a father entered into a particular covenant, he wasn't begging his kids to come with him. Right? Um, the family came into it together. Right? This was something of a family identity. Uh, and for a child, then, to depart from, right, to, 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 as an act of, of the child's own will, to depart from and to deny uh, the truthfulness, the rightness of his parents' own tradition, well, this is a problem. This should signal a problem in terms of the parent-child relationship, right? that maybe there's something off here. It should at least raise a question. Maybe there's something off here in terms of these Christian parents who espouse to be Christians but their kids want nothing to do with it, that signals a problem for Paul. Right, the child's, uh, we, we might put it this way, 
that a child's faithfulness and character generally and substantially indicates something about who his or her parents are. That our children are who they are, in large part, because their parents are who they are. There's a strong relationship between parents and kids in the biblical world. And Paul knows this. Which is why you can say that one of the ways we can discern whether a man is qualified is, are, are the children within his household believing? Are they faithful? Not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Okay. Now, it's, it's important to add to this, I think, because I, I, we probably all know exceptions to this. You don't you look at a family, maybe your own family, right, where uh, parents were faithful in bringing you to church, teaching you about the grace of God in Christ, and maybe you just don't see it. You know, maybe you yourself are struggling with it. You don't, you don't really want anything to do with that faith, okay? That's a real dynamic, right? And many people go through that, of kind of resisting what, what our parents have taught us and instilled in us. Right? You resist. Uh, and many leave the church altogether, right? And when that happens, you say, well, is that the, uh, is that the fault of the parents then? Right? Uh, is that because the parents did something wrong? And I want to say, not necessarily. Right? Not necessarily. But what the scriptures call us to is, uh, um, is to say, if somebody wants to be an elder, is appointed to be an elder in the, in the church of Christ, you need to pay attention to their children also. Okay? Have they raised them in the ways of the Lord? Are they believing? Are they faithful, faithful children? Okay. But I should add to this that all of this is covered by grace. Right? Um, all of this is covered by grace. That even for those who end up uh, turning away. Okay? This should not be heaping guilt upon those um, parents who have done their best, right? uh, who have really sought to raise their children in the ways of the Lord, and the children resist for whatever reason, rebel. Right? Um, uh, there's grace, and we continue to pray and trust that the Lord will do a good work in the children of such parents. And in all of you who one day will have children, Lord willing, uh, and then, for those whose children are walking with the Lord, this too should be recognized as God's sheer grace, his kindness. Uh, that when our children turn out to be much better than they should have been for having spent time with people like us, uh, we take that as the grace of God. God's kindness to us. He's, he's, he's kind, and he's faithful in all his ways. So, we've seen first that the elder is to be blameless in the domestic sphere, and here we're going to move much more quickly where we see that the elder is to be blameless in the personal sphere uh, in terms of his own character. Okay. So we'll begin in uh, verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. And then what does that mean? Uh, what follows is what, what this means, to be above re reproach. And it in involves both um, the negative and the positive. Okay. What not to be first, and then we'll get to what to be. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain. The elder, first thing we see here, is he can't be arrogant, or other ways of defining this would be self-willed, or overbearing. As one commentator puts it, uh, this trait is defined as a fundamental selfishness that compels one to ride roughshod over others in the effort to satisfy oneself. In other words, if the community discerns or experiences this kind of arrogance in a man, He's disqualified, Paul says. If there's somebody among you who, who you find he's willing to ride roughshod over other people, not take seriously their own concerns, but is always after his own will, his own concerns. Right? This, this is a function of uh, disqualification. Such a person shouldn't be made an elder in Christ's church. Nor can he be quick-tempered, a, a drunkard, or violent. Uh, this last word, violent, carries the sense of bullying. Okay? If somebody kind of comes across as something of a bully, in relationship to others. Such a person should not be considered to be a leader and shepherd in Christ's church. Nor can he be greedy for gain when the ends justify the means. Right? When a man wants something, reputation or success, and he's willing to sacrifice things that he has no business sacrificing. Right? He's willing to bend the truth in order to get the things that he wants. Bend and twist matters of justice to get what he wants. Someone else's reputation can get thrown under the bus in order to get his own uh, whatever he's looking for. Greedy for gain implies all of these things. And I think, my guess is, I won't ask you for names, but my guess is that we all know people like this. 
who we might identify, you know, in our minds and say, oh, that, that person's a bit of a bully or that, per you know, that person uh, is greedy for gain. Uh, and many of us may be thought of that way by other people around us. <laughs> that could be the case as well. We know people like this. We may be thought of this way by others. People who, when, when their name comes up in their minds, we think of some of these aspects, right? arrogant or overbearing or quick-tempered or self-interested or lacking integrity. Again, we may be very spiritual people, but Paul says, in terms of qualifications for an elder, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how spiritual you feel you are because the true test of spiritual maturity, it turns out, it's not a matter of spiritual giftedness or spiritual gifts, you know, tongues, prophecy, time spent in worship or the word, but rather character, character. Let this be a lesson. Now, the righteous man or the righteous woman is not necessarily the person who looks really spiritual. It's not the person who talks a big game puts on displays of godliness. That person shares more in common with the Pharisee than with the righteous person. Right? They know how to look godly. They know how to do the right things. They know how to be in the right places, give the right things, be humble in the right ways. We know how to put on the show, but that these are not the test of true spirituality. But rather, the true test of spirituality comes in what Paul is putting his finger on here. Like, when a person is confronted in their sin and told things that they don't want to hear, will they repent? Will they hear you? Right? When you go to a friend and you have something serious to tell them about some way that they've hurt you or done wrong by you or by another person, how will that person respond? With humility or defensiveness? Unwilling, arrogant, unwilling to hear and to listen. And what is their family life like? And what's their reputation among neighbors? Are they kind, self-controlled? Humble, people of peace. As Jesus puts it, you will know a tree by its fruit. And it seems here that he has in mind the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Paul continues. Now with the more uh, positive traits about being an elder. Again, we'll move quickly through these ones. The elder must also be hospitable, is the word he says, which is... Um, Literal translation would be philo-xenos, okay? Xeno, anybody think about a word that starts with xeno? Xenophobia, uh, you all know that word, uh, xenophobia. It's like the dislike of somebody who's other than you, right? It often has like racial dimensions, right? The dislike of people of another race, another ethnicity. Xenophobia, so it's the people who dislike. We're called to be um, philo-xenos people, uh, a lover of the other a lover of the stranger, right? a lover of people who are different from us. Right? Hospitality, I mean, this is the word for hospitality. We often think about hospitality as like people we can just invite our friends over all the time. Right? That's not really the biblical sense of hospitality. Hospitality has to do with lover of the stranger. It assumes that you're going to have your friends over. Uh, the question is whether or not you're hospitable towards the other, right? the stranger, the person who may not look like you or be like you. Right? How do you feel about such a person? And are we as a church, uh, church that's hospitable, uh, truly hospitable, a lover of the other, a lover of the stranger? I mean, this is where I think churches have a particular call to love people who are not like us. Right? Um, that as somebody who's older, say, walks in these doors at 2 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, uh, or somebody of a different ethnicity, or somebody who's in a wheelchair, or somebody who can come into this room and recognize, I'm a minority here, I'm an other here. We have a special call to treat such people with great love and with great care, to reach out to such people. Right? This is what it is to be a people of hospitality. We're a lover, a lovers of the, stranger, of the stranger. This is one of the marks of an elder and should be a mark of the church. A uh, lover of good, which stands in contrast, of course, to self-love. Uh, to be self-controlled, disciplined, prudent, sober, and modest are the senses that are carried within this notion of being self-controlled. And upright, which as one commentator puts it, the term here focuses on behavior that is just, fair, and inherently honest in dealing with people. So that if you find somebody to be a bender of the truth, okay, you can't really rely on what they tell you um, because you find that they tend to, to exaggerate or uh, bend the truth in ways that are 
harmful. Okay, I'm not talking about just people who are good, good storytellers. Uh, uh, but people who kind of bend the truth in order to look better, to, to gain their own reputation. Um, that this is one of those features that we say that uh, that's not befitting of, of an elder in Christ's church. Uh, holy is the last term, which has to do with covenant faithfulness and purity before the Lord. Right? Uh, to be holy in the Bible isn't so much about our own personal purity, although it's certainly related to that, but holiness is a gift of God by faith as we live in co covenant faithfulness to him, right? so that people could be um, uh, um, well circumcised in the life of Israel, okay? baptized in the life of the church, um, offering sacrifices in the life of Israel. All of this would accomplish their holiness, their righteousness before God. They were, not because they were particularly holy, but because they, by faith, we're exercising, um, living according to the call of God and obeying the commands of God in, in, a faith, in a response of faith towards him by which they could be called righteous and holy. Right. Okay, in short, Paul is saying that the elder in Christ's church must be of good reputation in their domestic life and personal life and in a way that others can see and discern. Now, an important question to ask at the end of all of this list is who on earth can do this? Hey, who can do this? <laughs> who can live this way? Who can live a life so blameless in all of these respects? Who can maintain a faithful union with their spouse right, as this one flesh union in every regard, not just bodily, but in terms of what we do with our eyes, the conversations that we have? Who, who, who can do this? Who can raise faithful children and not be arrogant, not be a bully or quick-tempered? Who can love what's good, be disciplined, upright, holy? Who can do this? And who can do this in a way that's consistent and enduring and unimpeachable? Who can do this? Jesus alone. Jesus alone. See, every man who's ever served the church in all of history as a bishop, as a priest, as a pope, as a presbyter or pastor, has only ever do done so imperfectly as a fellow saint, along with the rest of the church, fighting against indwelling sin, standing in need of the grace and forgiveness of God. This is true of every leader that's ever been in Christ's church. It's only Jesus, the true shepherd of the sheep, who meets these qualifications in the end. Jesus, the true pastor and elder, or as the Apostle Paul puts it, the pastor and bishop of your souls. Jesus, the true shepherd, the true overseer. And I think it's important to say that this is not just a, a good theological point to make, but an immensely personal and pastoral point to you, to you in your own walk, in your own participation in the life of the church, that, that Jesus is your shepherd. He's your overseer. He's your pastor. He's the one who's overseeing your soul, who's shepherding your soul, who has a great interest in you and seeing you grow in faith and seeing you grow in love, and seeing you grow in your understanding of the gospel and all that he's done for you. Jesus has this great interest in you. And all this time, you've thought that Max was your shepherd. Or whatever pastor uh, or priest or elder of a church that you're coming from. Right? All this time that you thought that these have been your chief shepherds. And that's obviously true in a sense. But don't miss this more basic truth. That for all who have trusted in Christ, been baptized into his own body, Jesus is your elder. He's your pastor. He's the overseer of your soul. He is, as Peter says, the great shepherd of the sheep. And this elder, Jesus, is not arrogant. He's not arrogant. He's not quick-tempered. He's not a bully. He's not going to manipulate and abuse you. Jesus himself stands, even still, as the great shepherd who will only ever do good by his sheep. He'll only ever do good to you. So that even while other leaders may be willing to break you and break others in order to save themselves, this shepherd is the one who is willing to be broken in order that you and I might be saved. Do you know this? That even as you walk through dark valleys, challenges and difficulties of all kinds in this life, do you know that even there he's with you? 
Even there, he's with you to guide you and to comfort you. His rod and his staff to comfort you. Now, a few years ago, uh, my wife and I went through a pretty challenging year, a very challenging year. A lot of bad things happened, the end of which my, my father uh, lost a ba uh, battle to cancer and died at 64, which might sound uh, old to you. Uh, but the older you get, the younger it sounds. <laughs> uh, it was a difficult year with conflicts in the life of the church. Uh, disputes. We lost some friends that year. It was a difficult time. And without going into the details, I'll just say that through that time, it was remarkable to watch the way that Jesus shepherded us as a family, that he cared for us as a family through dark and difficult times. He cared for us. And how he took some very broken situations, painful situations, and used them in his kindness to do all kinds of things, including chastising us, <laughs> confronting us in areas of sin. That was painful. He humbled and broke us in our pride. Uh, he did a good work in our marriage in that year. You know, there were some, uh, some, some challenges that we faced together and issues of blindness that went both ways, that the Lord used these very difficult experiences to expose in us, to humble us before each other, and to find deeper reconciliation than we'd ever found. Um, to save us from darkness and destruction, to bring us to greener pastures, and to purer relationships as a family, before the Lord, with friends and neighbors, and he's still doing good things through it all. He shepherds us, and for those with eyes to see, He's shepherding you. He's shepherding you. He's laid his life down for you. Would you trust him today to continue as the shepherd and overseer of your soul? Would you lay your life down in his hands? Humble yourself under his mighty hand that he might care for you and even raise you up. See, in the end, we find that the aspiring elder or overseer is to be like Jesus because Jesus is finally, fully, and faithfully the great shepherd of the sheep, and the overseer of all of our souls. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we come to you with different stories, different sufferings, pains, and I'm sure that in a room this size that there are people who have faced real challenges, even within your church, who have questioned where you are at different times in their lives have questioned whether you're near, whether you care. And Father, I ask that even today you would assure each one here of your love and care, that they would see in Christ the true shepherd, a great shepherd who has cared for us and loved us, who's laid his life down for us, who's come to the ones who rejected him, and who's come to give us peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask that you would do this good work in our hearts and that you would build up your church, and we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for that word. Let's take a moment to reflect and pray on what we've learned this afternoon. Let's bow, it, bow our heads as we just reflect on the teaching of God's word over our souls today.
Let's rise from our seats as we respond in song. that God we would take these things and we would build and we would continue to grow as a result of consuming them. We ask that your word would continue to teach us and mold and shape us. We thank you, Father. We also thank you for the provision of life and all things within it. We thank you for uh, the various uh, aspects and areas of our lives that we're involved with, whether it be school, whether it be work, in our homes, friends, different spheres that we're a part of. We thank you for those things, God, and we ask that we would be faithful stewards and good stewards of all resources provided to us by you, by your gracious hand, in the life that we live. And so, Father, as we give this offering to you, we ask that it would be used for the greater good of your kingdom and your church, and we ask that it would be used faithfully uh, to build your church up and continue this ministry that hopes uh, to see the gospel preached and to hope, and it hopes to see God's people grow. We thank you so much for all things, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We're just going to end our time together uh, this afternoon with a couple announcements and then with the Lord's Prayer. But I want to firstly welcome all of you. It's good to see some old faces and some new. We hope to get your names down, get to know you a little bit more. Uh, and so please join us uh, in our fellowship and our, in our confession study following service today. Um, our offerings can be sent two ways. Of course, we have our basket and envelope, as we always do, and I recommend that you 
uh, utilize that to the best of your abilities. Um, but uh, we do have an e-transfer email set up, so sheepgatefellowship at gmail.com is that. Um, we specifically give um, an allocation of our offerings towards local and mi local missions and, uh, and missions abroad in Asia Minor and here on campus. So if you'd like to give specifically to those causes, please just note that uh, in the notes section or on the envelope. And uh, we'd like to invite you for fellowship today. Um, as you know, last week um, I shared with those of you who were here, uh, Mikey's uh, father unfortunately passed away. Uh, if you know, it was uh, due to cancer. Um, and so we, of course, um, prayed for him, and as well as David as he lost his grandfather. Uh, we also had Kayla, unfortunately, losing her um, grandfather, right? His grandfather this past Monday, I believe it was. It might have been Monday or might have been Saturday night. It's getting blurry now. But um, yeah, so we have a lot of uh, people in our community who are at, time, at this time grieving. Mikey, unfortunately, also um, got COVID and pos tested positive, so he's unable to be with us here today. Um, and so, yeah, if you just keep everyone in prayer, all three of them, their families as they grieve. Uh, but Mikey's family wanted to host us for lunch today. Um, and so uh, initially we were gonna have lunch, but last minute he got COVID. So he all this to say, we don't have lunch. Um, so <laughs> um, unfortunately, I'm gonna have to ask you just for today uh, to provide food for yourselves. Um, and so you can just pick up anything and join us at our other building. Uh, if you are willing to join us for a confession study. Um, so yeah, whatever, it could be McDonald's or whatever, you know, just grab it. If you, all you want is a coffee, you can do that too. Um, and join us as we just have some, a short time of fellowship and then we'll go straight into confessions. This also means we don't need to do dishes, which is a little bit of a bonus, right? Um, and if you're wondering, will we ever get that meal from Mikey's parents or Mikey's mother? Um, that'll be next Sunday, so please um, join us. Uh, next Sunday afternoon, um, he'll be, uh, they are, they're graciously providing that for us, uh, and we're just truly thankful, um, but yes, please continue to pray for them uh, and their families. Our discipleship groups are, of course, continuing to run, and uh, I'm hearing some really great, awesome things that are coming out of them. If you'd like to get plugged in, if you're kind of newer or you're kind of having second thoughts, please plug in, like, we'd love to, we'd love to have you join us at any time. Um, and I'd like to thank, of course, Pastor Lyndon for joining us today. Uh, can we round of applause? Yeah. Thank you. Wonderful word, uh, wonderful teaching. Uh, I look forward to continuing uh, to build relationship with you and with the PCA and et cetera. So it's fantastic. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we have some people who are unfortunately under the weather and do, uh, dealing with some illnesses. So just please keep them in prayer. And I think with that, oh, I think in like a couple of weeks, uh, our university students with Kingdom Come, they have their higher calling conference coming up. So please keep them in prayer um, as they prepare for that. Uh, some of our members, of course, are leaders on campus. And so if, uh, those of you who've been through, you've been through some of that, you know, what it, uh, you know how stressful this time could be. Uh, so please, please keep them in prayer. With that said, uh, could we rise from our seats and end off the Lord's Prayer? Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. I'd like to, again, invite you to grab your own food uh, just for today and uh, join us for fellowship in the other building. Thank you.